Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. As we continue in the season of Epiphany, I hope that you're finding moments in your worship and in your devotion and your regular lives to encounter God or to see God in new and surprising, refreshing ways. Of course, in the season of Lent, we focus on, or I'm sorry, in the season of Epiphany, we focus on the life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus. In order to learn or perhaps to unlearn more fully the true nature and character of God and the invitation that he extends to each of us in life. This is the very reason that God came and dwelt among us. First, to bring rescue from our burdens, yes, but perhaps more importantly, to show us truly his nature and for us to know God and to fully be known by God. That is why Christ came. But if God came to free us, the question is, free us from what? And how is it possible to fully know or fully be known by God who is utterly outside of our ability to comprehend? I mean, he is the creator of the universe, an awesome and mysterious and wonderful God. Well, today, that's what we're going to try to wrap our minds around What is it that Christ came to free us from and to rescue us from? And how can we begin to know God more fully, to be known by God? We're going to be doing so by diving into a new book for us this year. We're going to be in the book of Mark quite often throughout this year. As we follow the lectionary passages, the book of Mark is what uh, comes up. So how many of you have a favorite gospel in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? For how many of you is Mark your favorite gospel? That's kind of what I thought. (laughs) I kind of feel like Mark gets the short end of the stick or gets overlooked oftentimes in the gospels. Of course, Matthew being the first gets a lot of attention, but you know, we also spent all of last year in Matthew. Matthew fulfills or tries to look at how Jesus fulfills the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament prophets, especially focusing on Jesus's role as Messiah. Luke is a very historical, journalistic kind of account, and Luke and Acts kind of flow right in together because of the same author. You know, they chronicle Jesus' life arranged in order, kind of chronological order. The gospel was written to establish believers throughout, through the teachings primarily of Christ. So there's a lot of Christ's teachings in Luke. And of course, John is kind of our mysterious gospel. It's the one that's focused on kind of the mystery around the divinity and the deity of Christ. To John, Jesus is the cosmic son of God, come to destroy the works of the devil, the works of evil. And the whole book is arranged to present Jesus in this way. But Mark, Mark focuses on Jesus' role a little bit differently. Mark focuses on Jesus as the suffering divine son of God. It elevates both Jesus's divinity, but especially Jesus's humanity. But more, it depicts Jesus as the 
compassionate incarnation of God. And really kind of all the surprising ways that that plays out through Jesus. While the other gospels, you know, contain long discourses and sermons of Jesus, Mark is all action. It's like these short snippets of action stories, you know? This is where we see Jesus doing things and then doing more things. You know, it's very action-oriented. And of the four gospels, kind of Mark reads the most like a story. You know, it kind of keeps moving pretty quickly. It is the earliest recorded account of Christ. So Mark is the first to have put his experiences down in writing the first written gospel. And if it had a subtitle, it would likely be something like the story of God in human form and all the shocking, unexpected, and surprising things that he did. <laughs> you know, the witnesses depicted in Mark, those who were around Jesus, those who were experiencing the things that Jesus was doing. The witnesses depicted in Mark are convinced that God is not just manifesting his presence and his power in the words of Jesus in the manner of a prophet, but that God fully has enveloped the Jesus that we know, the human, so that we meet God in his divinity face to face. You know, I think it's still really hard for us to wrap our minds around the incarnation of Christ. That God dwelling in Jesus' body is at the same time fully incarnate. Hmm. Mark also tries to address why God would present himself in this unexpected way. What's the point? Why? Why did God come? He proposes that God has entered into our creation because there's a problem. Things have gone wrong. And it is the state of affairs that, it's this state of affairs that helps us to understand what necessitated God's extraordinary intervention. You know, yesterday, Melissa and I watched the movie Oppenheimer. How many of you guys have seen that movie? At the very least, you know the history that we experienced just after World War I in the race to develop the atom bomb and all the travails that came after it. It's a hard movie to watch. You know, obviously there's the devastation that was brought upon the world through these actions. But then there's the weight that is carried afterwards. What have we done? <laughs> At the end of the movie, you know, after having moments of tears and just being shocked, Melissa said, you know, we just continue to fail over and over at being human. You know, and to me, what kind of pops right to mind was we have a hard time being human when we're so busy trying to be God. We're so busy trying to take God's place. God in Christ has come to set right a world that has gone wrong. And this is exactly where Jesus begins, setting right what perhaps we have misunderstood. Our passage of scripture today is a short one, but it contains a verse, a single verse with two sentences in it that really contains the whole essence of the gospel. And when kind of taken apart and deconstructed and considered, 
this two-sentence verse opens up to us the whole mystery, the whole invitation that Christ has. As we prepare to hear the reading of God's word, let us pray. Speak to us with your word, O God, that we may hear Jesus' call, the call that invites us to reimagine what it means to see and to know you, the call that invites us into a new way of being human, the call which invites us to follow Christ and be his true disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we'll be in Mark chapter 1 this morning, verses 14 through 21. This will be on the screens for you. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. It just kind of flows very nicely. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Later on, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus, later on after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. They left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Yeah, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Poor Zebedee. <laughs> yeah. You know, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. You know, this simple two-sentence phrase is the key to the entire human condition. It identifies what is broken, and it offers the solution that God felt so strongly about that he came to dwell among us in his son Jesus to show us the way. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Perhaps the unfortunate part of this phrase, these verses, is that, you know, there's a proclamation that's happening in this. And it has a couple of words that provide for us a challenge, oftentimes, in hearing the invitation for what it is. We think we know what these words are about. But this week, I've discovered that I truly didn't know what these words were about. <laughs> and so I've been investigating it, and this is what we're going to look at today. Today, we get to do some good old-fashioned Greek word study. We get to kind of de deconstruct what Jesus is saying and look at it for what it really was. <laughs> Greek word study. Yvonne's on board. <laughs> repent of your sins and believe the good news. The word repent used here likely doesn't mean what we think it means. And its use in scripture is likely very different than what we typically use it in our, in our culture, in our, especially in our churches today. The Greek word here is metanoia. Metanoia is a word that's made up of two little phrases. The word meta, meaning beyond, 
and noia meaning the mind. So in other words, this word metanoia essentially means to understand something in a new way. To understand something in a new way. It, essentially, Jesus is saying in this one word, you think you know how things work, but I'm here to help you see things in a new way. The English word repent has kind of this moralizing overtone, suggesting a change in behavior or action. Oftentimes, if you've heard this passage taught on, you'll hear the word repent as like making a 180 direction change, right? Like not just a course correction, but it's a totally 180. And that's not a bad idea because it is a way of saying, unknow the thing that you think you know and understand it in a new way. Metanoia seems to be hinting at a change, not only in action, but far deeper, a fundamental understanding of how things work. Jesus urges his listeners to change their way of knowing, their way of grasping reality, their perspective, their mode of seeing. What Jesus implies is this. A new state of affairs has arrived. The divine and the human have met. But the way you customarily see the nature of the world is going to blind you of this truth unless you learn to see things differently. All throughout scripture, Jesus expresses this concern over and over. He's saying this all throughout all four gospels. The kingdom of God is spreading out on the earth, but people are missing out. They're missing it because they're too focused on the wrong things. If they are thinking about God, then you know, they're thinking about a life of rules or a life of theories or a life of beliefs or a life of judgment. If they're not thinking about God, then you know, they're thinking about the selfish pursuits of gathering wealth and power and status and protecting what's mine. Jesus implores that our minds, our eyes, our ears, our senses, our perceptions all have to be opened up in a new way, widened, turned around, revitalized. And so this word repent, metanoia, it's asking us to transform our minds. It's the first thing that Jesus recommends that we do in order to, to confront the situation that we found ourselves in. But it begs the question, what is misformed or what is wrong about the way we see and live in the world? Of course, Jesus said, metanoia from your sin. To give an adequate answer to that question, what is wrong, what's broken? You know, we'd have to work our way through the entire body of scripture, you know, all throughout Christian history and our understanding of God and his interactions in the world. But to try to encapsulate that up shortly today. Now, this is what we try to do throughout our whole lives. Each week as we gather here together, we attempt to name and to heal the spiritual blindness that we encounter. But perhaps a simple way to kind of wrap this up is to understand what Jesus is talking about. It can be kind of considered in these terms. We tend to see the world 
We tend to know and perceive everything around us from a mind and a position of fear rather than a mind and position of trust. We tend to see and know and perceive everything around us with a mind of fear rather than a mind of trust. When we fear, we cling to what we are and what we have. When we're afraid, we see ourselves as the threatened center of a hostile universe. And thus, we kind of violently defend ourselves and our beliefs and our situations and lash out at the imagined adversaries surrounding us. What brings us, this brings us to this word sin, which is used in this passage. Repent of your sins, Jesus says. As you know, if you've been around the church very long, we understand sin in two ways. We understand sin as those things that we voluntarily enact, the things that we voluntarily do that bring us far from the will of God. Those things that we do out of comfort or out of satisfaction. These are what we call personal sins. But there's also this idea of original or natural sin that pre-exists our conscious decisions. This is the sin that we see that entered into the scripture back in Genesis chapter 3. It is the weight under which humanity struggles and God desires to free us. Common consensus all throughout scripture names fear or distrust or selfishness or the scarcity mindset as this original sin. It is the thing that begins pulling us away from the will of God, allowing or forcing us to focus on our own way. What Jesus is asking us to unknow or to know differently is that we don't have to live in fear. This is not what we were made to be. Remember, at the core of humanity, we each carry the image of God within us. We each carry the imago Dei. This means that at the foundation of our existence, we are one with the power of the universe. The power that continually creates and sustains us. God enters into us through his prevenient grace and attempts to restore the Christ-like image that all humanity is created in. Therefore, we can let go of fear and begin to live in radical trust. And when we let go of fear, when we let go of scarcity and instead trust in our creator, and his image within us, then we can begin to know that we are safe or in more classical religious language that we can be saved. But when we lose sight of this rootedness in God, we live exclusively in this tiny little island of ego and our lives become dominated by fear and distrust. Indeed, fear is the original sin of which scripture and theologians speak. Fear is the poison that was injected into human, human consciousness and human society back in the garden. Fear is the de debilitating and life-denying element that upsets the balance of our lives and our society. To overcome fear is to move from 
the small soul to the great soul. When we live in fear, we live in a very narrow, suspicious, closed-off way. But when we surrender and trust to the bearing power of God, our souls become open, roomy, expansive, the great soul. What Jesus calls us to repent, what Jesus calls us to unknow, is this transformation from the terrified, self-regarding small soul to a trusting, confident, soaring, open, great soul. But the invitation doesn't end there. There's one more statement that Jesus makes. Like the word metanoia, the term used for the word belief in our text is a word that we want to spend some time with. Repent of your sins and belief. Believe the good news. This term is the Greek word, peace to it. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it seems right. Peace to it. This too is a term that we often misunderstand. In our common understanding, belief is a way of kind of the things that we know to be true, the things that we affirm, the things that we can say, this is for certain. You know, these are the religious presumptions that we assume, that we pick up oftentimes that have been delivered to us by others. Sometimes with great proof and great explanations, sometimes with not, not with that. Sometimes just given to us. Here, believe this. Essentially, to believe is to blindly take someone's word for something in our common understanding. But often, this, does not, this doesn't sit well with us. You know, ever since the Enlightenment, for better or for worse, you know, ever since the Enlightenment, and it's altogether admirable insistence on individual rationality and reason, you know, the approach to faith of just delivering beliefs and have you adopt them has come under fire. In our common culture, it's not enough to just say, here's what everyone has believed before you. Now you just believe it too. That's not enough these days. Too often, Christianity has a, seemed to be this little more than a refuge for those desperate to find some kind of assurance about why we're here and how it all turned out this way. And this isn't necessarily bad, but it's not the place Jesus wants us to dwell. Jesus offers us more when he says, believe, peace to it. What he is saying in the biblical and traditional sense of the term, it doesn't really have anything to do with the adoption of presumptions. Sometimes irrational presumptions of God or of the world around us or those near and far. To believe as Jesus is describing it in this passage, it's to signal a new way of knowing the kingdom and being known by the kingdom. To believe, as Jesus describes it, is to allow oneself to be saturated by the power of God, to permit, to permit the divine reign of God to enter into our lives at all levels. You might say, to believe is to experience the immediate and the ongoing sanctification of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives. And as such, belief is not primarily a matter of understanding and assenting to propositions as it is a surrender to God and all that he wants for us, for God to become incarnate even in us through the Holy Spirit living and ministering in and through you. One of the tragic ironies about misunderstanding this statement of belief what belief is asking us to do is that it tends to boost up our ego. In other words, we might confirm the assumptions that we carry when we hear someone else who also carries that assumption, and now we're in this group, and we have the same assumptions. And other people who might not be in that group that don't carry the same assumption, those guys are the ones outside. We tend to hold them off. And all of this tends to just then perpetuate that problem we were talking about originally, this problem of fear. You know, we might be tempted to believe that we have true faith and that others don't because our assumptions about the Bible or the world are different. And this is the problem that Jesus is confronting. So when Jesus says, believe in the good news, it's really, it doesn't have much to do with these mind games. Rather, it has everything to do with a radical life change of being known and knowing God. It invites us to set aside fear, scarcity, and self-sufficiency and to take up trust and generosity and partnership with the Holy Spirit in all aspects of our lives. And this is the invitation that causes fishermen to drop their nets and to follow Jesus. This is the invitation that causes them to literally jump at the chance to follow someone who's saying something different. Simon, Andrew, James, John, they've heard the invitation and they jump from their boats at the opportunity to learn to live in a new way. Of course, these guys, they've heard the prevailing storyline all of their lives. You know, they've been chock full of these presuppositions during their time in Torah school when they were young. All Hebrew boys and girls spent time studying scripture day in and day out. That was school. And at some point, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they couldn't keep up with the other students. They weren't the top of the class. And they were politely encouraged to go home and take up the family trade. You know, they failed to make the cuts, you might say. You might say they failed to believe properly in the way that they were understanding the ability to take up these presuppositions and deliver them properly. And I think Jesus knew this as he built his church. I think he knew that for the kingdom of God to gain the momentum that has encapsulated and so captured the world that we live in today, it was best to find footing among those who were not closed off to the new ways of seeing the world that Jesus invited people into, but rather people who were hungry, starving for something real and something different. And when Jesus says, become fishers of men, He's inviting these Torah school dropouts to partake in the sacred work of metanoia and peace to it, 
for others just like them. To repent and to believe, to unknow, and to be restored in mind, to be free from fear, free to trust, free to be known and free to know God, the God who is inviting each of us into abundant life, restored. I know this is a hard one. It's a hard one to wrap our minds around. But these outsiders, quote unquote, that we read about, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they represent you and I. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives. This is exactly who Jesus is looking for, you and I. This week I was listening to a podcast, no surprise. I say that a lot. <laughs> but this week I was listening to a podcast. And it was telling the story of this man who, you know, for much of his life has battled with substance abuse, broken relationships, and just general drama in his life. It just, you know, ups and downs constantly. You know, he is an incredibly talented journalist, you know, has had a wildly successful career as a web journalist. And has worked for all of the biggest websites out there, but likewise has crashed and burned and been fired from most of the great websites out there and has moved on and his career has just continued. This wasn't because he was somehow, you know, corrupt or evil or just a broken person. Instead, his story is one that I think many of us can identify with. He was just one of those kids who never really felt like they fit in you know, to the people or the situations that they continually found themselves in, always just kind of felt a little bit like an outsider. He described the moment when he first realized that he was likely going to be an alcoholic or something like it for most of his life as the day he entered into kindergarten. When he first entered school, he realized that none of these kids we're ever going to really be able to understand him and to meet his needs, to be known or to know the way he desired. Isn't that heartbreaking? As a kindergartner, to just recognize you know, my whole life, I'm just going to be like this and no one's going to get it. What followed was a childhood of moodiness and solitude and eventually depression and substance abuse. You know, so sobriety and peace would only come to this man years and years later when he finally understood that knowing and being known are needs that are only met by the one who has made us the one who has created us, the one who pursues us and provides us for freedom and care and love and mercy and compassion, the God who invites us to repent of our sins and believe the good news, to metanoia, to turn from fear into trust, 
peace to it, to know and to be known. What he means is when Jesus says, repent of your sins and believe the good news, what he means is embrace the unknowing of what you think you know and join me in something different, something greater, something larger. You don't have to be afraid anymore. God is here and wants to know, to be known by you so deeply that every aspect of your life is saturated with his presence. You'll learn to trust. You'll learn to be generous like you've never imagined. To be so saturated with the presence of God in your life that you become a lighthouse in the dark for those like you who were once lost in the storm. To become fishers of men, as Jesus says. Fishers of people. Will you hear the call? I don't know what you might need to unknow today or to unlearn or to relearn or to let go of in order to embrace something better, to know God so that you might be known by God. But as we gather at the Lord's table and receive the elements of God's gracious generosity in our lives, I pray that each of us consider Perhaps what either we eat, need to unknow or what we perhaps need to know more deeply. The strongholds that fear may have in our lives, causing us to cling to things that draw us away from God and his will. And instead embrace the trust, and the assurance that Jesus offers to us. I pray that as we gather around this table, we would have that moment of reflection. Amen. Amen.